I'm Kyle Thompson. And you're listening to General Intellectiness. And um, this week we've got a pretty special episode where we're going to be uh, interviewing Andrew Pickering, who is the author of The Cybernetic Brain, which uh, we, we covered in a couple of episodes um, a few episodes ago. Uh, really exciting stuff, you know. We're, um, we're big fans, and um, this, this turns out to be a pretty sweet interview. Yeah, uh, very enjoyable. And uh, if you, of course, if you... Uh, have not listened to those episodes and uh, have not read the book, uh, you may want to go back and listen to them because uh, we don't give a whole summary of the book or anything like that. So uh, if you want that, go back and listen to those other episodes, then come back here and uh, listen to the interview. Otherwise, uh, enjoy. Enjoy. you taking the time out um yeah thank you i appreciate you reading my book <laughs> oh yeah. no it's it's been uh just loved it um i guess it was my second time reading it but i still really really got a lot out of it um and uh i really appreciate just like bring the history to this stuff um and co- constructing a history we could follow <laughs> we've, we've yeah. done some other sort of intellectual histories that were a little bit rough but that one was the, the cybernetic brain was just so readable um, yeah yeah I, I found it um i found it absolutely transformative to read you know honestly um because it's just such a um, such a unique field you know and like that is so it's not really understood very well and like to have this really clear um writing that just explained it in these these uh, very clear terms was was transformative you know it it actually changed the way i look at the world you know <laughs> <laughs> i mean you know i i really enjoyed writing it because they're such great stories you know the projects these guys got up to are just so fascinating and imaginative so it's not really intellectual history to to be honest it's a history of practices and projects and objects Yes, I mean, that's really what is, I mean, of course you mentioned it in the book, but it really is uh, very noteworthy that you get all of these communities and, and practices and artifacts uh, that are worth talking about as opposed to just um, kind of, uh, you know, standard intellectual history of, of who inspired whom and what debates happened and yeah, what were the different contending sides of an academic argument. Yeah, I mean, when I first got interested in cybernetics, I, I, you know, I started reading general accounts of what cybernetics was or is, mm. and all about servo mechanisms and thermostats and negative feedback, and it sounds really boring. <laughs> yeah, yes. <laughs> original books by these people, and the. What they were doing was just incredibly interesting. Mm. I found the uh, the split between um, the uh, what we call like the sort of American versus British cybernetics to be really fascinating because like I, I read like um, Norbert Wiener and a couple others yeah. like, of the the American sort and I was like yeah like you put it very well that it's this very austere science of command and this sort of thing and I was like eh, okay that's not as interesting but like beer and these other guys wow <laughs> like what an incredibly yeah. different world you know. Uh, I mean you know. 
Wiener sold a lot of books, but he really wasn't a very good writer about anything. <laughs> yeah, and no fun reading Wiener at all. And, yeah, a book that is kind of purchased by many people, but not really probably consumed in any depth by most of the people who <laughs> bought it. <laughs> he actually wrote a novel. I don't know if you know that. Oh, I didn't know that. It's about a young engineer in America building <laughs> control systems. And it's you know, absolutely the dullest book you've ever read. I, mean, <laughs> I forced myself to read it because it was by Norbert Wiener, but nobody else would, I don't think. um well i guess we we have um a sort of collection of questions that we've sort of mapped out but i mean we can um we can go over anything as well like if if anything pops to mind but um yeah i guess kyle why don't you like maybe pick one off the queue and we'll start from there yeah sure um so i think we you know you were mentioning how this is this book the cybernetic brain kind of covers a a selection of, of very interesting and eccentric men uh, and I was wondering if you you came across any uh, women in the field who were uh, kind of deeply involved in this sort of uh, eccentric uh, work. Yeah, I mean you're right. I mean this basically I'm writing about a bunch of rather old-fashioned English men. It's true. If I try to think about important women in the history of cybernetics in Britain. I don't think there are any. Yeah, so do you think that that is kind of um, related in some way to its its lack of institutional basis or this kind of nomad character of, uh, of, of cybernetics? Uh, you know, if you went to the kind of straightforward explanation, you could say there's, you know, an engineering side to cybernetics. Gordon Pass is, you know, one of the most imaginative people you can think of, but he was always building gadgets, you know. There weren't many women engineers, you know, in the 40s, 50s, 60s, 70s. Even today, there aren't many. The most eminent female cybernetician was definitely Margaret Mead in America. She was primarily an anthropologist, and that's a different kind of field. You know, there are, you know, there have been plenty of women anthropologists. And yes, she just of course. Kind of over the cybernetics, not least because she married Gregory Bateson. But um, on the English side, very, very few women, I have to say. Mm. Well, it, it wasn't exactly a, a women's world in the 50s in Britain, was it? You know? Um, oh, no, no. And there are a few women who feature in a story in the cybernetic brains. Yes. You know, when Pask exhibited his famous colloquy of mobiles at the ICA in 1968, that was an exhibition called Cybernetic Serendipity, organized by a woman, Yasha Reichardt, young curator in those days. And a friend of hers designed, who was also a woman, theatrical designer, designed the the shapes of the female robots in the colloquy of mobile. That, yeah, that's, I mean, that's, that is quite interesting in a way though, because there are sort of parts of the story where this kind of engineering sensibility intersects with the art world. Um, yeah. And, and I, I guess there were kind of opportunities for women to participate to somewhat greater extent in in those areas, even if they were not, you know, quote-unquote cyberneticians. 
Yeah, I mean, certainly Yasha Reichardt was somebody who was involved in it. The, the trouble was that cinematics was most important in the artwork in the late 1960s, which coincided with the Vietnam War. Mm-hmm. And people then decided that cybernetics was a bit too scientific and engineering, and they were bad uh, things yes. in the Vietnam War. So... Again, after, you know, from the 70s onwards, they turned cybernetic art, turned into a, you know, more of an engineering thing practiced by a few men. Right. So it it, it, it was that, uh, yeah, that turn in the politics that they kind of drove it back out of the broader art spaces in a way. Um, For different reasons, the 60s were the kind of high point in cybernetics. Various factors conspired against it after that. It was associated with the counterculture of the 60s, of course. Culture died in the 70s. The same thing happened to cybernetics, I'm afraid. We're hoping we can bring it back. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. And the 60s, So, yeah, kind of moving on to um, another another question we have here that, like... um, I mean, in sort of recently, like this hylozoic perspective um, or this like cybernetic monism has kind of become pretty popular, among, especially among some uh, some forms of like um, post-humanism. Um, do you see these develop- developments as promising and kind of like... Yeah, I, I do see them as promising. I mean, I think I think I was one of the first people who started talking about ontology, um, mm-hmm. you know, 20 years ago or something like that claiming that ontology was going to be the, the big word of the 21st century. And, you know, in a small way, I was right. There are now people who talk about, you know, the new materialism, new vitalism. Mm-hmm. Even people who talk about animism. And I, I actually think that's the most interesting um, stuff happening in you know, philosophy and Yes. Social sciences these days. Exactly how you're going to get at, you know, the, the liveliness and materiality of the world we live in is, you know, different people answer the question differently. You know. Writing about cybernetics is one of my ways of answering the question. You know, a lively we can interact with. You know, right. what cybernetics is about. So. Uh, sort of taking up that perspective and taking up the the history that you have brought together in the cybernetic brain, uh, did you find like that your your work was like kind of uh, well received in those those circles, or that that there was a kind of interest in cybernetics that developed among all those different uh, new movements in philosophy and social science? I don't know. I mean, in a way, I. <laughs> When I was writing the book, I had this awful feeling that I was going to turn into one of my cyberneticians. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I mean, as, as you know, I wrote about the fact that they didn't have any kind of solid institutional basis. Yeah. And they appealed to, you know, other cybernetics types in all sorts of fields, right? So it's a kind of anti-disciplinary endeavor. Mm-hmm. And I, I guess I had the same feeling about my book, you know. I mean, it's not central to any academic discipline, I'm, I'm sad to say. But a lot of people seem to find it really interesting, you know, including you two, right? It, it, yes, absolutely. It yeah. speaks to people. Right? It definitely does. And, like, I've found that... Um... 
I mean, it's maybe it's one of the, these phenomena where you um, you start to you know you you see one thing, you see a green car, and then suddenly you're seeing green cars everywhere. But um, I'm definitely seeing like your book, the cybernetic brain, tying together a bunch of different threads, which I, I see everywhere else. You know that like um, <laughs> like what. Uh, well, I, I guess like uh, I, suppose, I suppose this kind of like hylozoic perspective seems to be kind of like pretty popular. Like as as, as we were saying that like um, and you know complexity theories and this sort of stuff. Like um, there's a lot of remnants of cybernetics everywhere, you know, and a lot of a lot of things that I think we could tie back together with cybernetics. Like it, it would give us a vocabulary to start kind of talking across um, different disciplines about all these commonalities, you know. Uh, that's very nice. I mean, maybe you shouldn't say remnants. You should say descendants, right? <laughs> descendants. <laughs> yes. Cybernetics. Yeah. You know, the argument was that cybernetics is part of a different kind of non-modern paradigm. Yeah. So my project, and maybe your project as well, is to bring all these descendants back together, right? You know. Yes. Try and display their unitary character. Here's another way of understanding the world. Here's another way of acting in it. And it covers, you know, as many fields as you like. So, you know, that's part of the politics of the, the project for me, trying to reassemble what I call this anti-disciplinary paradigm. Yeah, and that's been very resonant for us, absolutely, on this podcast, because, um, you know, we... we very much came from an anti-disciplinary background. We have no uh, solid institutional basis for our work. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> we, we just kind of happened to find each other through serendipity. Uh -huh. So it, it felt like, uh, you know, we could we could be a, a part of the, 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 the sort of tradition that you outlined in the book. <laughs> <laughs> um, so getting to the that sort of uh, more kind of contemporary point um in in the book in the cybernetic brain you emphasize the the value of the way uh cybernetics makes a performative ontology practical and um what i was wondering what kind of practical projects of or artifacts uh have you seen in recent years that realize this kind of ontology is there anything that stood out to you as like really interesting or exciting or a great example you know, after I wrote the book, I, was, I tried to kind of follow these developments into areas that I hadn't written about already. That was, mm -hmm. I was still interested in the same thing. How do you kind of act out this ontology of unknowability? But I wondered, you know, what other directions it could go in. And the, the two big things that I have ended up concentrating on are, first of all, all the arts. I talked a bit in the book about you know, cybernetic art. Um, you picked up the thing about Brian Eno in one of your podcasts. Yes, yes. There are many, many um, very exciting things happening in the art world these days that stage a kind of cybernetic ontology. So, you know, maybe I've written about that. Maybe I okay. should write about the ball length. And I was going to say that that's um, really interesting because I, I think we brought it up in the other episode, but like I, I came from a music background and like a lot of the the techniques that Eno sort of pioneered in music and that kind of cybernetic ontology sort of stuff and like setting up systems to generate music is just taken for granted now as the standard way of doing things for so much uh, experimental music. Yeah, it's really uh, it's a good touch point. Mm. Yeah, ex experimental music. I mean, it's still in the margins though, isn't it? You know. Um, well... 
there there was a I recently had the opportunity to visit the um, Team Lab uh, borderless uh, installation art project in uh, Tokyo, um, and that is by no means uh, you know a fringe thing. It's a major uh, major installation uh, project that is attracting huge crowds. Um, so, I mean that that feels very much like a descendant of. Uh, of the kinds of uh, art that is is in the cybernetic brain um, certainly seemed to me at the time. So I, I think it has a popular audience, but maybe just not in the music world at the moment. Yeah, yeah. I mean, uh, I, I went to a fabulous exhibition in Paris just a couple of a couple of months ago. It's called Artists and Robots. All the kind of cybernetic art, very beautiful stuff. A lot of people there, so it's it's not like it doesn't exist. Um, mm-hmm. On the other hand, if you just pick up, you know, a national newspaper, I read the New York Times, you know, just to keep track of what's going on. You never right. hear about stuff, right? In a sense, it's still <laughs> over the horizon from mainstream culture. Yes, yes. The New York Times is all about you know, the latest $125 million sale of Leonardo da Vinci or something like that. Right. Mm-hmm. <laughs> that's what the art world. Yeah, yeah, that's that's very interesting. Um, I wonder if these, these artifacts are are too ephemeral to attract the, uh, <laughs> the art auction crowd. Mm-hmm. <laughs> No, I mean, certainly one, one story is that you have to care for cybernetic artworks in a different way from paintings and sculpture. That's absolutely... So curators don't know what to do. You know, you know, the British Museum has got a tortoise, one of Grey Walter's mm-hmm. little robot. It doesn't work anymore. <laughs> is it just sitting there? <laughs> yeah. Just to wander around and do things and to find light. But nobody can keep it going, right? Oh, uh, yeah. Yeah, having said that, a friend of mine is actually is actually rebuilding the, the famous colloquy of mobiles, uh, Gordon Powell. Oh. Yeah, that's Detroit. If you look it up on the web, you can probably find pictures of it. Okay, we'll, we'll try and find a link to that for the show notes, yeah. Yeah, so um, just picking another another question off the queue here, um, that in the cybernetic brain we get this, like, wonderful picture of the history of British cybernetics, but were, were there any other national or transnational cybernetic, like, projects that uh, that caught your interest during your research? Um, no. <laughs> <laughs> That's a very good answer. It was the other way around. I, I didn't say to myself, you know, I'm going to start studying British cybernetics. Mm. I said to myself, I'm going to find out what it is about cybernetics that interests me. Yes. And I kind of honed in on, you know, various books and articles. And then I thought, you know, <laughs> my goodness, they're all by English. In the States, Warren McCullough claimed to be an honorary Scotsman. I mean, and, of course, Gregory Bateson was English, although he went to live in America. Right. And for some, for some reason, I don't really understand. The British were especially drawn to this, the kind of cybernetics I talk about. It's very interesting, isn't it? And... Um... Because it's not as though the sort of tinkering 
engineering experimental tradition is is really foreign to all that many other places, even though it's you know maybe most famously associated with Britain. Uh, yeah, but uh, nevertheless, there's something about that group that is very interesting and, and special. Right. Well, I mean, because they weren't a group to start off with. Right. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> they came to this from different angles. And eventually they coalesced, especially around, you know, Norbert Wiener and his book. You know, the quote from Stafford Beer is, my God, I'm a cybernetician. You know. Yes. Um, <laughs> Wonderful. Wonderful. You know, in, in England during the Second World War, there was these, a lot of scientists were involved in the war effort. And the word for them was boffins. I don't know if you know the word boffin. Yes. Yes, but, you yes. know, Boffin is kind of a, a Doctor Who kind of character, if you know who Doctor Who is. Yes. Somebody, you know, very clever, very resourceful, probably has got a sonic screwdriver, and, you know, can sort out any problem. And these guys are kind of Boffin-like. Right? They're not super professional MIT mathematicians like Wiener. Right. They were, uh, yeah, because my guys weren't really involved in the war at all. So I think I'm rambling a bit. Ask me a different question. <laughs> um, well, I guess maybe a follow-up question would be, um, we, we've, we've, studied, we've looked at a little bit of, like, um, the Soviet cybernetics, and, uh, I mean, it didn't, it didn't really take off in the way this, uh, I mean, you know, but, like, was that a part of your study at all? Um, no, because I... Oh. <laughs> I did learn a bit of Russian when I was a schoolboy, but I can't read Russian. Um, I'm, I'm friends with uh, Slava Gerovich, oh, yes. who wrote the first important book on cybernetics in Russia, which is called From Newspeak to Cyberspeak, or, or vice versa, right. which is very much, you know, it was frustrating for me because it's very much an institutional history of First of all, yes. cybernetics was very unpopular. Then it became very popular, enormous institutes of cybernetics. And then it became a kind of content, contentless way of speaking. So it's kind of very frustrating to me. I didn't know what they were doing with the cybernetics. I suppose it's very different from the British stuff because, um, like, I mean, the Soviet Union was all institutions all the time and didn't, didn't have that wiggle room for weird boffin types to uh, do whatever they wanted. Yeah, I well, I don't know. There's some weird ones, some weird, right. you know, idiosyncratic Russians in history. Um, there are at least two books. There's Red Plenty, which I think you did a podcast about. Yes. Which is a very idealistic kind of operations, research, economics, kind of cybernetics people mm -hmm. who are trying to figure out how to optimize the Soviet economy. I think that was the big thing in the Soviet Union that they called cybernetics. I I would call it operations research or, or you know, some kind of economic modelling. Mm -hmm. uh, but it's not the kind of performative experimental stuff that interests me about British cybernetics. Well, I didn't, you know, try writing about Soviet cybernetics very much at all. Yeah, I... I, I... You know, there are many different kinds of things that have been called cybernetics. <laughs> yes. You know, the internet, for example, cyborgs, and all of these things have a kind of family resemblance to one another. But they all have different histories, really. 
Um, and some seem more interesting and more politically exciting and more mysterious than others. And that's the way I think of it. Yeah, and um, I think sort of getting to that, that definitional question, um, one thing that kind of stands out to me in reading the book or looking at other examples of, of cybernetics is that uh, you know, diagramming is is a very important practice in cybernetics. It seems. Um, how do you think that practice contributes to the kind of performative ontology that you you identify as the as the core of your of your history? Uh, I don't think I got the faintest idea. <laughs> <laughs> you, you defeated me. Oh no. <laughs> <laughs> uh. yeah. No, it's an interesting question. I mean, you know, is it true that everybody I wrote about built machines? No, most of them built machines, and you find circuit diagrams, logic diagrams, you know, Pask would map out how the different bits related to one another. One kind of relevant point that I made in the book that's concerned this thing I called a the cybernetic discovery of complexity, mm -hmm. which is that if you just join a few simple components together with a couple of feedback loops, they tend to behave in such a complex fashion that they become unpredictable. Yes. So Craig Walter said he couldn't predict what his tortoises would do. And there were many things about homeostats that Ross Ashby just couldn't predict. Mm -hmm. You had to build these machines and find out what they would do. So, you know, diagrams of a multiplicity of components attached to one another at least feed into this ontological point about a world that's so complicated, full of exceedingly complex systems that we can never understand it. Mm -hmm. It all do things that, that surprise me. Um, having said that, I'm still thinking about your, your question. Um, Gregory Bateson didn't draw diagrams. <laughs> and he was, you know, anthropologist turned psychiatrist turned animal behaviorist. Right. Um, you know, he just wrote very enigmatic English, but I don't think he I can't think of any drawings. Okay. Well, yeah, I mean, uh, that is, I, I guess that. In in some ways, it could at least kind of serve as a as a starting point for thinking about those unpredictable performances that you might bring about, and and maybe a way of abstracting them as 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 a, as a stepping stone to some other performance you might stage. Well, um, so there was the point in the book that that you, that you had in the book about um, in the for the cyberneticians, like representational modeling was reduced to a. Um, an epistemological tool that was in service of the ontology rather than being a kind of totalizing mm. model. Um, so maybe that's the role of the diagramming is just um, as a, a helper to, to get you into the next performance. Yeah. Mm. You try thinking that if you want to. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. The um, thing that really got my imagination going on that topic was just sort of the, the way that, that, 
that Beer was using diagrams of the body, diagrams that were, you know, yantras, geometric diagrams, uh, all these kinds of different diagrams, um, all within this kind of cybernetic practice. Yeah, no, I mean, it's very interesting. It's, it's clever of you to pick that out. Yeah. <laughs> I just don't know where to go with it. I, I, I never really regarded the diagrams as problematic. I must be... Damn person myself. You know. uh. <laughs> <laughs> I think there's there's something kind of haunting about the beers diagrams though, like the um the sort of combination of a sort of pseudo biological diagrams with this like um corporate and um technical sort of layouts is quite quite haunting in some instances. Yeah, no, I mean he, he he also was an artist, right? I mean you know mm. he's a poet, but he he was an artist. If you look at his handwriting. It's got very beautiful flourishes in it. Because yes. he was addressing himself to the you know, the corporate world, the government world. So the the diagram of the viable system model was like his trademark for a long time. Yes. Yeah, uh, the other beautiful well, I don't know if it's beautiful, it's a the picture of the uh, icosahedron, which is the yes. center of disintegration. That's there are so many amazing diagrams. Yeah. <laughs> I was going to say I'm kind of annoyed about diagrams. Maybe that's why I can't answer your question. Ah, I see. Put one on the front of the the front cover of my book. Mm-hmm. You do Chicago Press, and it's it's a very boring kind of logic diagram. People do associate with the Cold War, right? Yes. Which is completely the wrong picture, as far as I'm concerned. I, I wanted to have a, a painting by what's his name. It'll, it'll come back to me. But, all right. Sorry. Carry on. Yeah. I guess one other sort of point that stuck with me from the book was in the, in the conclusion, you sort of talk a little bit about education and its relationship to cybernetic performance. Um, I was wondering, like, have you had a lot of sort of personal experiences of trying to implement some kind of cybernetic uh, education program or curriculum uh, personally or uh, is that is that something you've you've seen other people experiment with um, it's it's as, as a teacher it's it's quite interesting to me <laughs> selfishly I have to ask this question <laughs> yeah I mean you know personally I've taught this stuff right mm-hmm. Um, I've, you know, I've asked students to read stuff about cybernetics, but as I was saying earlier, cybernetics is just an example of a, a much wider pattern and paradigm, you know, that you can find everywhere, this kind of transformative experimentation. So, you know, I spend entire semesters teaching this stuff to students. Mm-hmm. And the hard thing for them is to try to get the hang of what the course is about because it is coming from a different angle from everything they've, or most things they've learned before. Yes. But my personal experience is they, students often really enjoy it. You know, they, at the end, they say things like, oh, you opened my eyes. <laughs> uh, that's good. precisely what you want, isn't it? Uh, yeah, that is precisely what you want. <laughs> so, I mean, at the end of the book, I was just kind of imagining scaling that up to the size of a university, right? Right. So the, this university that I was imagining would 
teach you know a whole load of fields from the perspective of cybernetics or this kind of ontology of becoming right right and there are you know so many fields you can find examples of that and you can very easily teach you know undergraduates how to think about the world in that way how to act in different areas in that way mm -hmm. yeah you know maybe you could do it like that was my fantasy to start a new university evidently i did not do that <laughs> well it's 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 going to be out there in the in the world now uh be many people listening to this <laughs> podcast and maybe one of them will start that university yeah. uh when you're appealing for money, you know, if anybody's got a few million pounds, they would like just <laughs> in a new university. Um, and, and, you, know, you can imagine teaching school children. Maybe actually it would be more strategic to teach children when they're five years old to yes. get the hang of these ways of thinking and acting. And then, yeah, yeah, the important thing is they don't even have to do that. Don't even, they don't have to do it to the exclusion of you know, kind of modern science, but just as, you know, it's something else that they have available to them. So the next time, you know, we set up to kind of dominate the, the environment and risk some enormous catastrophe, it'd be great if a lot of people said, you know, this isn't natural. We don't have to behave this way, you know. Right. <laughs> Differently. We don't have to keep risking the planet or, you know, propagating this war of terror day after day, day after day. Yes. Uh, yeah. Just to realize that you know, maybe we can get out of these arms races, which is basically what they are, I think. Yeah, yeah, right. Personally, I was kind of inspired by the book to try to implement it in some of my classes. Um, and uh, I, I made an experiment of uh, trying to teach uh, English by means of a game design class to uh, to make it uh, sort of iterative and reflexive and performative um and i've had i've had mixed results but i'm not going to give up <laughs> gonna stick with it mm -hmm. because uh, I, I think i think there's you can you can see the quality of the classroom change when you introduce these kinds of methods of pedagogy. That, that there's a certain amount of wonder and, and and a different kind of way of thinking that that does emerge. Yeah, that's very nice. I mean, if you get anywhere with it, tell me about it. You know, Absolutely. I mean, I, I I used to have a friend in America who used to come to all my seminars when I was teaching there. Uh, it was a yeah, I think he was quite a leading programmer, and you know his thing was agile computer programming. Mm, do you know sure. that? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Well, I could imagine you could try and do something like that in you know your class in game design. You know. Yes. Yes. Of course. They were going to collectively produce some little bit of action, see what emerges, and you know next week we'll add something else to it. Yes. Yeah. I mean, that's the idea. Agile is a kind of collective way of precisely constructively exploring the unknown without planning everything out in advance. That was the way he used to talk about it. Mm. Yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm a, a software developer by day, and yeah, that's that's definitely a, an accurate sort of take on Agile, yeah. And um, I think maybe one of the things I'm interested in doing is expand, like bringing cybernetics back into um, software or like technical development sort of stuff. Because uh, yeah. 
that's one of those threads, you know, that we were on about earlier that is like, that has a lot of the, um, the echoes of cybernetics in it, but could do with being reintroduced, you know? Yeah, I mean, probably the interest, well, the, the very suggestive contrast that Beer wrote about, which I talk about in the book, is uh, in conventional computing, we kind of, you know, silicon chips, you have to arrange matter almost atom by atom to make a, a chip that'll do what you want. And then you have to program it operation by operation. And, you know, Beer's fantasy in the late 50s and early 60s, is instead of doing that, to find some very lively bit of matter and persuade it, <laughs> try and persuade it to help you in whatever it was you wanted to do, rather than torturing a load of silicon. Yeah, it's a very fascinating line of thought. Uh, really, I mean, I'm sure it's captured the imaginations of many people, but <laughs> certainly mm. captured mine. Yeah. Uh, it's reminiscent of the way we do um, machine learning now, which is sort of, I mean, it's, it's still using traditional silicon, but there's um, the turn yeah. towards using that kind of, here's a cluster of neurons or virtual neurons, and we're just going to throw information at them until they adapt to whatever pattern we want to match. Mm. Right, and the, the, the network is, you know, trying this set of connections, trying another one. It's precisely a kind of performative experimentation, and then the feedback take it, you know, encourages this trial and error to home in on, you know, in the end it's telling cats from dogs and things like that, isn't it? But the process is very interesting. And of course, cyber, neural networks grow out of cybernetics from a different angle. Uh, yes. I don't yes. talk about it. Like I noticed that when I was reading um, Brain of the Firm, that like a lot of the uh, the anastomotic reticulum that uh, Beer talks about is essentially a neural network, and it's like okay, there's a, there's a weird echo there, you know, to, uh, well, to those ideas. Uh, yeah, uh, mm. I couldn't even say that word. I, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, oh, I, I think that this this idea of lively matter is also very interesting, and you know, I would I would I would. I'd be very interested if someday some people started doing liveliness studies, um, <laughs> <laughs> finding lively things to interact with and, and thinking about them. Yeah, I think there's a that's really interesting because um, it, it, it's sort of there's a there's a technical sort of blind spot in, in in a lot of mainstream technical thinking of like trying to construct synthetic um, constructs that. Um, have have desirable properties. Like I, th I saw a thing the other day of like, oh, you know, a self-assembling material that assembles itself out of carbon from the air. And I just thought, what a tree, you know? Like, <laughs> those things exist. Why are you trying to research that? Like, just just use a tree. <laughs> um, yeah, I guess so. One of the last sort of questions we had mapped out was um, that if you if you had the opportunity to write another one more chapter for the cybernetic brain. Which, which person or topic would you focus on? Yeah. Well, I mean, you know, in a way, it is my intention to write a book that would carry on from the cybernetic brain. I guess everything I've ever written carries on from whatever it was that I wrote before. <laughs> sure. So in this case, I mean, I would write about cybernetic approaches to the arts and to environmental management. And I might throw in a bit of uh, Eastern philosophy Mm -hmm. um, to, to try and tie it to a general discussion of other ways 
ways of being in the world. So I'd like to contrast these cybernetic ways of being more systematically with the kind of dominating and then framing ways mm. that we used to go on it, right? Mm-hmm. Sure. So in a way, I, I, I do have a kind of <laughs> entire book in my mind. It's just um, that the more I think about it, it tends to get more complicated, which I don't like. But you have to say have to make too many qualifications, you lose the line of the argument. So that's why you can't go out and buy this book at the moment. Well, it's it's a very fitting problem given the, the subject matter, I suppose. <laughs> yeah. We all have to manage complexity in some ways, I suppose. Uh, uh, the last sort of question I'd like to ask uh, uh, is... You know, given that this is a this is a this kind of a politics podcast, um, there's, a, there's a lot of sort of political foment at the moment, um, and and there has been a kind of revival of interest in things like Project Cybersyn, um, you know, and uh, in the sort of left uh, these days. Um, yeah, so uh, do you, do you think that you know there is do you think that these things are moving in a in a kind of constructive direction? That that, that that the there's a chance that these kind of ideas could actually get integrated into some kind of party platform or some kind of institution? Uh, is that is that something you see around you uh, these days? To a limited extent. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, right. Um, I've, I've been trying to be optimistic since the end of the the second millennium. Mm. And I, I keep being disappointed. <laughs> <laughs> I think I'm wasting my time. Uh, so there are two angles on the politics. What I tried to talk about in the book was a kind of practical politics, which was a politics of practice, right? Mm. So cybernetics hangs together with a set of ways of acting in the world that don't try to dominate the material world or other people but try to find out experimentally about you know how things will go what does this mm. river want to do you know that's what i mean by a different you know systematically different way of being in the world yes and i think this systematic difference is is political right it's not political on the level of left and right right but it makes a difference as far as you know group domination and the kind of catastrophes that go with that, contrasted mm-hmm. with curiosity, finding out, a kind of joyous optimism about what the future might hold. That's, that's a big political choice. Um, and I suppose, you know, one thing I'm trying to do in my work is make it clear that there is this kind of choice. We yes. talked about before, right? Yes. So there's a kind of possibility there. Uh, you know, I don't know how real it is. It would be great to bring all the threads of this alternative paradigm together. Mm-hmm. Like we talk, and who knows, you know, maybe just the right person is listening to your <laughs> podcast when it comes out. I nearly got run over by a Tesla just before I came home to talk to you, which was going silently down this lane. And I, I thought, you know, who's, who's the guy that makes Teslas? He's got so much money, he could finance the whole thing for us if you want 
<laughs> well, seems to be a little bit of an unreliable character. And <laughs> mm. um, the, the other political thing, uh, the kind of new conventional politics in the world probably started with the Occupy movement. Um, you know, how to bring people together democratically to make decisions instead of, you know, this kind of one-off, one-bit choice that we get every five years in England, you know, we can vote for the Tories or the Labour Party and that's it. You know, kind of uh, non-hierarchical decision-making seems to be on a lot of people's agenda. It was also what people were trying to do in the 60s in the counterculture. Yes. Places like Kingsley Hall. We haven't right. talked about psychiatry, interestingly enough. And the anti-university tried to be a totally democratic body. Uh, and there are other examples of this. And they all failed, right? Yes. And they failed. Because if you get more than three people trying to talk to each other, the conversation just never ends, right? The system never sets down into an equilibrium. This is what that Ross Ashby tried to talk about when he talked about a collection of homeostats all interacting with one another. Right. If, if there was a few of them, they could come into the equilibrium in two seconds. If there was a hundred, they would take longer than the life of the universe. <laughs> and it's the same problem with Occupy and the anti-university and all of these hierarchical institutions. And that is actually why Stafford Beer is so interesting. He was inventing ways to cut down the variety involved in decision-making without creating hierarchical centres. So the interesting thing about cybersign, for me, is that the different levels kind of communicated experimentally and homeostatically. The top level would propose something to the next level down, which would come up with a counter-proposal backwards and forwards mm -hmm. until they could agree on something and, and so on, up and down the, the chain. And the point there is, you know, it's, well, it's completely different from conventional management where the people at the top make decisions and transmit them as orders to the people at the bottom. It's what British universities do, actually. I mean, that's a very real way. Yeah. So Stafford Beard invented another way which tries to involve everybody but cuts down the variety. Actually, that disintegration icosahedron we mentioned was an example of how you could join the different levels of the viable system model together. And every, you know, every position on that icosahedron is isomorphous with every other position. There is no special position. Yes. At the same time, not everybody is talking to everybody else at once. There's a kind of dance here. You know, I talk to those people... Then I talk to another bunch, and then I come back to the first bunch. So you cut down the variety, and you make the conversation manageable without putting anybody in charge. Um, that's a different kind of politics, which is very interesting. And I think, you know, well, you know, then the question is, what's happened to the Occupy movement? Mm -hmm. there, there is, there's still interesting things happening in Spain. I know a former student of mine is working there. I think, I think it's going in the right direction in that respect. Mm. You tell yes. me. <laughs> <laughs> I think we would very much like to bring, um, you know, the viable system model and beer's ideas into the, the realm of emancipatory politics, because I think, yeah, there's an enormous potential there. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I mean, I'm, 
I'm not so sure that all the, the wiring and the telexes and the, the ones that people <laughs> were really the important thing about CyberSign. I mean, people no. talk about it as being a kind of imaginative forerunner of the internet, which is it's kind of interesting, I think. But what most people miss are these kind of the homeostatic couplings within the viable system. Yeah, it's certainly what I found more compelling about uh, the project than it's, it's, you know, part of the technical history of networking, right? Um, yeah. Some people say it's great triumph was to, you know, break the Grenier strike. Mm -hmm. I'm not sure you want to boast about breaking the strike. <laughs> yeah. It was, it was the bad people who were on strike. You know, no doubt the CIA was behind it. Yes. Strike breaking. It's it's yeah, not not a great uh, not a great look. Um. <laughs> um, yeah, well, I guess. Um, is there anything else you'd like to to talk about before we wrap up? Me. Well, <laughs> uh, no, I mean, I I, I have the feeling that you know. Today, we've covered most of the important topic, which for me would be something like the connection between the ontology of cybernetics and all the weird and wonderful practices that go with the ontology and the, the politics of the whole thing. So, I mean, I think that that was great. I'm not con congratulating myself. <laughs> <laughs> sure. And, of course, you know, your previous podcast also um, – bring all sorts of stuff to life from the history of cybernetics. Like, you know, the, maybe the, the other things to think about might be, you know, the cybernetic psychiatry, Lang and Bates, and, and the, the image of the self that goes with cybernetic psychiatry, the idea that the selves of the psychiatrists were also likely to change in psychiatric therapy oh that's been yeah that's been a, a as a game designer that part of the book has been a big inspiration for me i know <laughs> <laughs> in terms of how i think about designing uh, tabletop games it's, it's really really given me some new ideas yeah <laughs> well that, that's amazing and you know i was going to say the other another thing we could have talked about more would have been cybernetic art mm -hmm. Actually, you know, the art and the psychiatry and the selves probably all come together in game design, if you think about it that way. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. You can have it all. <laughs> yeah, well, it's maybe why I love it so much. <laughs> well, uh, yeah, I think, you know, in the future we may uh, get to cover the rest of the book, and that would be wonderful as well. So, um, yeah. You can make nice. it a series, you know, it'll run yeah. and run. We probably should, yeah. Do do the rest of the chapters piece by piece, yeah, certainly. Yeah, take a few more years over. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, uh, th thank you very much. Okay. Thank you. Thank you very much. I yeah, really thanks. enjoyed it. It was fantastic. Uh, yeah, the listeners will appreciate this. Thanks very much. Excellent. Take care. I thought that was a that was a really great interview. It was um, very gracious of him to take some time out to speak to us as well. But like, 
yeah, I loved it, especially like on the on the political political points. Yeah, the like there really is this um, this hope for you know an, another way of being that isn't based on domination and um, and just sort of rank kind of um, brutality <laughs> against each other and against nature. Like that's it's heartening, you know. Yeah, um, I, I mean, I feel like you know it's an aspiration that is is commonly held and you know has been held by many people over the ages you know going back at least to the anabaptists or something mm-hmm. <laughs> or, <laughs> yeah. well there's there's you know all around the world uh, this is a this is a sort of thing that pops up from time to time and i guess in the modern age it's it's been a recurring thing as well as as he mentioned uh in the 60s during the Occupy movement uh, it comes back and comes and goes but uh, I think the, the the promising thing is that cybernetics can give us a way to think about this constructively instead of just stating the desire yeah right? yeah and it can it can help us to bridge across all sorts of different disciplines with a common vocabulary so that we can we can have um we can make sense of things i mean we we, covered, we went through that in the interview that um there's all sorts of different threads that can be tied back together and yeah i mean one of them is emancipatory politics right that like there's a um, enormous potential for applying especially the viable system model but just even just cybernetic notions in general applying them to emancipatory politics i think is extremely promising and that's why we're doing yeah. the show, right? <laughs> right, right, absolutely. Yeah, um, yeah and uh, as it looks uh, increasingly likely that uh, labor might get into power, uh, <laughs> I sincerely hope that some of these uh, some of these lessons are are brought into uh, the many many problems that they will they will confront in government. Yeah. Um, and uh, yeah. hey, if if we've got any uh, you know labor insiders listening, you know hit us up <laughs> when when that day comes. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Yep. Um, no, definitely. This is uh, this this has been a good. That was a really great conversation. Um, and yeah, I'll try I'll try and find the the art installation he was talking about for the the show notes as well. So check out the show notes for some cool links, maybe. Um, yeah. Yeah. Probably throw in that, uh, borderless exhibition in there mm, too. Um, yeah, cause yeah. it's, it, it really is, uh, a descendant of, uh, the kind of art you find in the cybernetic brain. Uh, and, uh, maybe, I don't know, maybe I'll do some kind of monologue or essay or something about my experience of the installation because, uh, I think it it, it it is sort of a work of art on the order of something that you might, you know, have seen in, like, the World's Fair. Or, I'm sure, right. Um, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> kind of a, a historic project, a very ambitious project, and one that has a lot of mass appeal. Um, and so it's, it's probably worth reflecting on in that sort of cybernetic lens. Uh, but... Uh, that's all dependent on time, so <laughs> yeah, <time's laughs> we'll a, see. Time's a bit of an issue these days. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. But uh, yeah, I guess that's it. I mean, that great interview. Um, and um, yeah, I think we should get around to uh, covering the rest of the book in probably pieces, like over the next year or so. Um, we should do the Bates and Lang chapters, I think. Or is that is that just one chapter? Uh, 
I believe that was one chapter, but don't hold me to it. <laughs> uh, who knows? We'll figure it out. Um, yeah. Yeah, we really should finish it off because amazing, amazing book. Um, yeah, fantastic. Uh, yeah, thanks, listeners, for listening to this. Um, and if you appreciate this sort of stuff, um, you can follow us on Twitter at GIUnitPod. You can find us on Facebook. Um, you can uh, subscribe to the, the feed as well. It's a nice way to keep up with us. Um, or uh, if you want to support the show explicitly with um, you know a couple of bucks a month, you can go to patreon.com slash general intellect unit and um, you know so give us a, l- a little bit of money to help cover things like books and, uh, and hosting costs and such. But yeah, otherwise, um, thanks for listening and we'll see you again in a couple of weeks with a new episode. Uh, goodbye. Bye.